This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone. This is New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Ryan Tripp. We're here today with Associate Professor of English at the College of Staten Island, City University of New York, Laura Sagwisag. She published last year, Incorrigibles and Innocence, Constructing Childhood and Citizenship in Progressive Era Comics. Welcome to the podcast, Professor Sagwisag. Uh, thank you so much, Ryan. Thank you for having me. So uh, again, this book was published uh, last year by Rutgers University Press. Can you tell us a little bit about the cover and the process of the cover selection? Yes. So um, I'm very happy with the cover. Uh, So I uh, recommended this cover um, to Rutgers University Press um, uh, last year. And I just suggested that, you know, this, the, this, there's this cartoon, um, titled um, Amateur Circus um, by RF Outcall that I felt perfectly um, encapsulated the thesis of my book where it's just like this image of children like misbehaving um, in like, you know, the parlor of this uh, late 19th um, century home. And I... I just gave it to them and said, like, you might be able to find, um, you know, you might find this very, very useful. Um, and I was very happy with how they were able to use um, the cartoon. And what's also important is that, um, you know, Outcult does figure very, very um, significantly in my book. So to give him this kind of uh, focus on the cover, I felt was very important to me. Now, how did a, a, sequ- a sequence, seriality, commercialization, and childhood in progressive era comics foster multiple and sometimes contradictory readings that embody the paradoxes of progressive regulatory economies? And who are the audiences for such comics? Um, so I want to start uh, answering that question by first talking about how the comics um, used and reproduced uh, existing caricatures of, of the period, you know, these visual and linguistic stereotypes that essentialized um, and reduced, like, you know, entire groups of people into, like, a few attributes, often which were negative in nature, right? So, again, the comics are full of these caricatures, and they were typically derisive of African-Americans, European immigrants, the working class, um, suffragettes, uh, lower class and middle class women. So there, there, there were so many targets of these caricatures. But what I found was significant about the, um, the comics, once they use these caricatures, they actually sometimes manage to kind of open up this very one-dimensional character into kind of like multiple readings. 
Um, so I'm building off on the work of other comics theorists who've argued about like, you know, when you put two images in sequence, right? Like a, a comic is like a sequence of panels. And when you're putting these images in sequence, um, the space in between, like, you know, what, what we call the gutter um, allows the reader to participate and kind of like fill in that space uh, and make their own interpretation. So it kind of opens it up to like the readers and interpretation. Um, and the other thing that I'm building on is like uh, other, other comics um, historians have talked about um, how the serial form of the comics, you know, cause often, often it's like, there's a formula like week after week, the cats and jammer kids would commit mischief. And then at the end, the very last panel, they're going to get spanked. Um, but after a while, that kind of formula does get like tiresome. And so some of the cartoonists, and it's in this case, Rudolf Dirks, the creator of Cats and Jammer Kids, would kind of play with the formula and give it like some variation to, to keep to keep it interesting, right? But um every time they would create that variation or have the characters um act out of character. So for example, like the cat the cats and jammer kids, instead of um, getting spanked will escape the spanking or instead of misbehaving they would actually be doing a good deed um, it actually gave the character the caricature more like like developed the caricature or it g- gave it a little bit more of um, dimension um, and of course because like the comics were appearing um, in newspapers and the comics were being used as a way um, to like sell the newspaper uh, Cartoonists were off, and, and their editors were often thinking about, you know, how can we um, attract a, a wide and, and diverse um, audience? And there's a word that um, I, I think uh, the scholar and comics historian Ian Gordon has used. Like he's described com- comics in the progressive era as, as polysemic, where you know there's this like one one comic, but it has like it, it opens up to a possibility of different meanings because they're trying to kind of like make this cartoon or this image attractive to different kinds of readers. So more readers would buy the comic strip. I mean, like um, want to read the comic strip and buy the newspaper. Um, And so it's like allowing um, the the comics would be read differently by different readers, according to their social cultural position. So for example, like um, if we look at a caricature like the Yellow Kid, um, a nativist would look at the Yellow Kid and see it the yellow see the Yellow Kid as like you know oh this is proof of how like immigrants really are um, you know other and should be marginalized and are not welcome here in in the U.S. that they're impossible to to reform. Um, Maybe a reformer would look at you know this image and and think about like see these these children really are um, pitiful and we should um, continue our efforts at reform. Um, immigrants might look at the 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 cartoon and and see like see the cartoon as um, mirroring their own experiences, while other immigrants might look at it and see that this is insulting. So it's kind of like. Um, you know, one character could open up to a, a variety of, of meanings. Um, and what I, um, in this book, what I add to that conversation um, is pointing out how many of these caricatures were um, attached to childhood or, or, you know, to be more accurate, that many of these caricature, caricatures 
were also child characters. And what's obvious is that, you know, like um, these children or, or by, by attaching, a, making a caricature appear childlike was a way to kind of like um, diminish the object that was being mocked or scorned, right? So it's like to insist on their primitivity, to insist on their, you know, perpetual immaturity. But um, what's also interesting around that time, uh, children or childhood is increasingly being seen as this period of um, purity or of innocence. Um, and that children were also believed to be malleable, that they could cha- they could be shaped, right, um, and changed. Uh, and so what's interesting for me is how this um, alignment of the caricature with childhood actually kind of like um, gave the sense of double meaning where there's this, um, this image that could be simultaneously, um, you know, derisive, but at the same time sympathetic because it appeared like a, like an innocent child. Um, I, I do want to clarify that there are limits to this reading because um, as I discuss in my book, uh, at the very end, like I felt like the trend was the comics were tended to celebrate a very, very particular kind of childhood. And that childhood would, would have been like white and middle class and, and male. So in, in, in a sense, they, um, even though they were creating these sympathetic images of, um, of, of children, of the lower, of lower class children, of non-white children, at the end, like there was a celebration of the white middle class boy. So what roles did European and Asian immigrants, as well as ethnic uh, conflations thereof, play in John Hart's 1904 Jap-It and Clarence Rigby's Little Ossid comic strips? And how did specific episodes in these strips, especially uh, Little Ossid, compare and contrast white, quote, white and oriental childhoods, as well as differences between the oriental child and adult in the context of uh, American consumerism? Um, yeah, so I, um, so when I, I read these comic strips, um, Jap It and Little Acid, uh, you know, I, I place them in the context of existing stereotypes of, um, East Asian immigrants. So, um, around the time, um, you know, Japanese and Chinese immigrants were being seen as like, um, well, for one, they were being conflated, um, like often, like, Japanese were mistaken for Chinese and Chinese were mistaken for, for Japanese or that they were, they were all the, under this umbrella of like the quote unquote, the, the Oriental. Um, and they were often kind of like labeled as the, the yellow peril or, you know, the immigrant who was stealing jobs from the white working class. And, and then they were also like, you know, sexually deviant. Um, and so like, uh, in my reading of Jap It, I, I did see how John Hart, um, the creator of Jap It, kind of like built on these um, these stereotypes, and particularly he was his representation of of um, the protagonist um, who was named Jap It, right? That he was like very sly and he was inscrutable, um, and his his age was also indeterminate. Um, he looked like an adult, but he, but he appeared childlike. So there was all this um, suggestion that the uh, East Asian immigrant or the Japanese immigrant um, was per- perpetually a child. Um, but what's interesting in that strip is that um, there's also this suggestion where, so Jap it, um, he, he's a very hardworking and, and like a clever, like merchant. Um, and 
they're always like these European immigrant um, youngsters who are kind of like always ma- making trouble um, or trying to like, you know, steal from him and get his money. And they're always just like loitering in the corner and they're idle. Um, and so Hart was kind of like creating this. Um, so even though he was mocking Jap it, he was also suggesting um, that the East Asian immigrant was a lot more hardworking and more productive than these, like, you know, troublesome and um, idle uh, European um, immigrants. Um, on the other side, on the flip side, there's Little Acid um, by Clarence Rigby. Uh, and in this strip, uh, what's interesting is that Acid is actually, so he's, you know, he's very othered in the sense that he he's wearing like, you know, tra- like, quote unquote, like traditional Chinese um, garb. Um, his name, like Acid, also kind of like establishes that he's not like, you know, American. Um, but what's interesting is that he speaks in, um, like his English is like, you know, quote unquote, like perfect English. Uh, it's not, it's not accented. It's not broken. He doesn't like, um, he doesn't, uh, exchange his R's for L's, right? Um, and he's also very sensitive. Like he, uh, there often in in the strips, he like he like cries, um, and it kind of like establishes that he's able to, like he's emotional. He fe- he's able to feel pain, like um, so kind of like saying that he's not this heartless um, yellow peril. Um, and this strip, uh, little acid, kind of like creates this um, difference between. Acid and his grandfather. So his grandfather is always buying like toys and clothes and other American goods um, because he's trying to make sure that he wants his son, oh, sorry, his grandson to assimilate um, into the United States. And the grandfather believes it's through like consumption and it's through use of these like material goods that his grandson will be able to co- become like this, like, you know, good American boy. So he would buy a seed, a pop gun, a rowboat, um, a, a hoop and stick. Um, and a seed would, you know, play with these things and then like derive pleasure from them. But on the other hand, the grandfather would be inept with them. And eventually, you know, like, uh, or it's either he's inept with, with like with his own um, attempt to use these goods or while a seed would use them, it would end up like, hurting his grandfather or annoying his grandfather. So his grandfather would just take his frustration out by destroying the goods. Um, and then Asid would look, you know, um, uh, look at this destruction and just like weep. Um, and so the, my reading, my reading of this strip is that it's showing how um, it, grand, the grandfather really wants to um, help his grandson assimilate. Um, and it, it's showing how Asid, the young um, immigrant, uh, is more capable of um, acculturation. It's like he's, and it kind of speaks to like you know what what historians have pointed out. Um, historians of immigration, uh, more specifically, have pointed out where um, to the very real tensions that exist between um, generations of immigrants, where the adults uh, often have a harder time. Um, assimilating into the United States, whereas young people would more readily acquire English and they would easily, um, they, they would easily um, kind of like participate in consumer culture uh, um, to that extent. So, yes. 
How did uh, Rudolf Dirks's uh, The Katzenjammer Kids, which you alluded to earlier, derive from Wilhelm Busch's uh, Max Moritz? And how did the strip, including dialogue, advance the American, quote, naughty boy trope, emphasize generational prejudices, and incite sympathy for ethically other children? And how did uh, German newspapers receive the strip? Uh, that's a good question. So uh, Rudolf Dirks was inspired by um, the sh- what's called like the Schrecklich Kinder, like the horrible kids um, uh, from like G- German stories. So um, Dirks uh, had himself immigrated to the United States from Germany when he was about like seven years old. Um, and one of the Schrecklich Kinders um, that were uh, very, very uh, popular were Wilhelm Busch's um, Max und Moritz. Um, but what's different is that Max und Moritz was a cautionary tale, um, you know, about these like two boys who were just like um, like malicious and like were ma- always making trouble. And at the end, they they get their punishment, where they're like, you know, it's like this very um, gory ending where they get baked into a crust and then they're ground up into pieces and then like you know they get eaten by by ducks um, and. Rudolf Dirks like didn't have that kind of like um you know like a that terrible en- ending for his um catch cats and jammer kids episodes like you know it's it's more humorous um where the the punishment that the the cats and jammer kids um Hans and Fritz the brothers would tend to get would be like you know a spanking uh, at the end um and and they also proved to be very like you know they were just like incorrigible like despite getting their punishment at the end of one episode by the next episode um, they would be back to their their old tricks and um, you know perhaps it's not surprising that some uh, German American readers were upset by by this image imagery of German American childhoods. Um, there's evidence that um, so there's uh, the the German American newspaper um, Staatszeitung um, actually I think they like wrote this editorial where, where they were complaining about the Cats and Jammer kids uh, because they felt like the the strip like Dirks's strip was like perpetuating this bad image of the German American child as incapable of, of assimilating um, into the United States like. Um, and that they were also like you know incapable of learning the English language because they would speak in like you know kind of like a quote unquote German accented English and sometimes their English would be would be broken. Um, uh, th- there are some um, scholars of German American um, culture though who who suggest that some German American readers um, were delighted by the Cats and Jammer Kids. Um, so uh, you know that that. There were some German Americans who looked at it, um, looked at the strip as a source of like German American cultural pride, um, and and uh, other critics have suggested that maybe some German Americans, you know, were like read the strip and kind of like used it to define themselves against the Cats and Jammer Kids. Like they would read the strip and and think, well, that's not me. That that may be a certain type of German American immigrant. But definitely, that's not what what I am, you know. Um, uh, to to the other um, to the other part of your question, like um, I, I my my reading of the um, ultimately what my my reading of of this trip was that it was proving how um, your 
European immigrant children, or more specifically the German immigrant child, was actually um, very, very capable of, of assimilating, um, especially because uh, Dirks was aligning, you know, these naughty German American children with the quintessential, like, um, naughty American boy, um, like Tom Sawyer, um, that it was kind of like, he was trying to show that actually, um, you know, th- these energetic in, um, uh, resourceful and, um, independent boys very much are like, you know, the, the typical, um, American boys who have these like same qualities of, um, like autonomy and, and vigor. And it was a way to kind of like show that these boys, because of these qualities were able, um, could, could become like, you know, productive citizens um, and could thrive in what um, a modernizing um, capitalist society. And just like in Little Ass Seed, I think what was key in the Cats and Jammer kids is that um, the, the, the children, Hans and Fritz, were often pitted against um, their mother or um, this very funny character called the captain who was also an adult, right? Um, It was a way for, the strip was also kind of showing how um, the children who were always outsmarting the the adults, uh, who were also immigrants, um, was trying to show how the immigrant children were a lot more capable, a lot more flexible, um, and would have an easier time assimilating into... um, U.S. Um, U.S. society versus uh, their adult um, counterparts. Progressive era comic strips such as E.W. Kimball's Blackberries please provide examples of the trope of the quote "picaninny" and its lampooning of black consumer citizenship, the coon uh, quote coon leisure activities and purported sexual depravity. In addition to the Blackberries' expression of blackness as a comestible product of Miss White ambivalence? Yes. So um, to be honest, it was really difficult for me to like uh, read and study um, Kemble's um, blackberries because they were just like these very, very derogatory um, images of, of African-Americans. Um, but, you know, he was not alone in um, creating this, this imagery Like he was building on and rep- reproducing existing um imagery of the black child as what was called the quote unquote the the picanini um you know this very depraved um child who was also like sexual like sexually objectified um who was uh, pictured as corrupt as just like um unsalvageable unredeem um irredeemable um and what's interesting about the blackberries like even if you see the characters as um, they, they look like children. I read it um, as that these characters are not meant to be read as, as actual children, but it's meant to uh, show that, you know, African-American adults are childlike. They're perpetually immature and they're irrational. Um, and, you know, earlier I had mentioned how um, during um, this period that uh, there was a growing belief or the uh, um, more and more um, adults, uh, especially like middle-class adults were embracing the idea that children were innocent. Um, but here in, in the blackberries, it seemed to align, like um, it, it seemed to say that uh, 
children or especially like you know black children were like savage um and when they grew when they grew up right when when african americans grew up they would continue to be savage that there was just like no um there's no redeeming them um there's one specific episode of the blackberries titled um october uh, black blackberry um sorry uh, october a blackberry idol um where it actually it, it shows how you know the blackberries are um kind of like hypersexual and hyperviolent uh there's this image of like um you know one one girl is kind of like lifting her skirt uh and showing her legs she's like flirting with with one of um with one of the other blackberries um and then there's like this this couple of blackberries who are um kind of you know trying to have like a romancing one another but behind them there's like another blackberry who has like a razor and like he's look he seems to be looking at the couple with like this um like murderous intent like it's he's like he's so envious that he like he has murder on his mind um and it this very same strip also shows like one of the blackberries kind of like tying a little kitten to like a fishing pole and he's trying to use the the kitten as um alligator bait um so it's showing that you know that these um that these characters are just also cruel to animals um and this this trope actually of gator um, bait uh, was very very common during that period when you know like it would show um, black children as actually like being eaten or about to be eaten by alligators. Um, and I uh, just just looking at it, it's like um, th- this idea of like you know black children being devoured by by um, an alligator was on the one hand kind of like uh, showing how. Um, or this kind of like white white fantasy about black children suffering from pain, right? Or wanting to kind of like um, like hurt the black body. Uh, but it's also this kind of like Im- imagining how the bodies of these children um, were also like you know something to consume, or they're, or they're very consumable. And it's very interesting that. Um, the characters in the blackberries are called like the blackberries as if they're like fruit that you like pop into your mouth. Um, and, and by thinking about this and building on the work of um, Kyla Wazana Tompkins who had theory theorized about the work of, um, or, or like all these other popular culture imagery of, of the period that kind of like imagined um, the black body as something that you could consume. Um, what's also interesting about like, you know, like, the blackberries is that they often um like like the 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 characters are uh portrayed as if they all look alike right that as if there there are no individualizing features among african-americans um and some of the episodes of the blackberries or actually most of the episodes of the blackberries are about um the blackberries trying to go on vacation or they're you know uh trying to enjoy some leisure activities like going on a picnic or riding horses and there's always like this sense of chaos like they're actually never able to enjoy themselves they just end up hurting hurting themselves um and um in a way it's kind of like this suggestion where um african americans uh don't deserve to like go on vacation because like um the the idea of the vacation or the idea of leisure was seen as like uh like something that only hardworking, um, productive Americans 
um, deserved. And so it, it was, there was this kind of like implication in the blackberries because it's mocking um, the idea of the, the African-American going on holiday as it, because it was saying like, you know, they're, they're indolent. So they have no right to go on like vacation. They have no right to enjoy leisure. Um, what's also interesting about the blackberries is often they're placed in like, you know, the countryside, like in, in a, they're, so it, in a way I, I read the, the, these cartoons, these series of cartoons as a, um, a commentary um, on African American migration to um, the cities, to urban centers by kind of like, putting them in in the countryside, it was saying that this is where they belong, um, that they have no place um, in in the city. And they're they're kind of like um, you know, sealed sealed off from from the urban centers. How and why did a common quote unquote naughty boy trope, shared emotion emotions and Anglo Saxon identity figure into the Cats and Jammer crossover with the Blackberries, as well as the comic strip Buster Brown? And how did certain strip episodes reinforce racial hierarchies and quote-unquote clean black bodies? You've kind of already explained this, but I kind of want you to allude, 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 elaborate more on that. Sure. Um, so uh, what was interesting, so Rudolf Dirks, um, he, there was like this one episode where he borrowed the characters, um, like E.W. Campbell's Blackberry characters uh, in in one of his cats early, very early Cats and Jammer kids um, episodes, and um, you know which was a like um, fairly common practice among cartoonists of the period. Like if, especially if they were working for the same newspaper, they would sometimes create these crossover strips. And what's interesting, in a way, um, is that Dirks uh, kind of like changes the meaning of the blackberries once he borrows them from. Campbell, like, you know, there's no mis- there's no mistaking that, of course, these were still very, very racist um, representations. But at the same time, um, I found it interesting that for, for Dirks, when he, um, like, he showed these white European um, immigrant boys um, almost having, like, a kinship with uh, the Blackberries, uh, or what, what he called them, the, the Blackberry, um, these two Blackberry brothers, like, you know, there's um, this, they share this sense of mischief, a sense of play. They're, um, they become friends. And there's this one moment actually when uh, they have like their arms around one another and they're all, all four of them in a row. And it's like, you know, um, white European child and an African-American child, white European child, African-American child, like in, in alternation, as if kind of like this suggestion that for these children, they had no... And anxieties about interracial um, encounters, and in in that episode, the the their prank was um, they, it was almost like they wanted to make fun of adult anxieties about um, interracial mixing, and so what they what these um, four children do so uh, the two the Cats and Jammer brothers and the Blackberry brothers they like swap clothes um, so that the Blackberry brothers would pretend to be the Cats and Jammer kids, and then the Cats and Jammer kids would pretend to be the Blackberry brothers. Um, and, you know, so they, they, what's what happens next is that the... We only see, though, is that the Blackberry brothers, um, dressed up as Hans and Fritz Cats and Jammer, go to Mama Cats and Jammer. So in a way, the, the strip 
really is more concerned about white European um, anxieties about blackness and about and about like you know quote unquote like racial contamination um, when white mix mixes with with black right and um, and so it's like you know we folk we, we never see how the blackberry mother responds when she sees her like quote whitened children um, we only see how uh, mama cats and jammer like her terror when she sees that her children children have become in, in her eyes like dirty uh, because they're, they they ha- now have black skin and what's supposed to be funny about this episode is that you know she she um puts these uh puts the blackberry brothers who she thinks to be her sons um in a tub and then starts scrubbing them and try to get them clean and you know the the joke is supposed to be like oh they're never going to get clean, you know, because it's impossible to clean like the, the black body. Um, and, and this actually, this trope is actually building on um, Aesop's fable, um, the Blackamoor, you know, where these, um, where uh, a European merchant, I believe like purchases and enslaves um, an, an Ethiopian. And then he's like, Oh, I think like my, my, um, my slave, like, you know, the, the, the merchant thinks like my slave is dirty. So I'm going to clean him. And the enslaved Ethiopian, of course, is just like, um, just catches a cold uh, because he's being like, you know, he's being scrubbed and he's like, he sits in a, this tub and he's like exposed. Um, and so like the the lesson supposedly is that you can never, you know, that the, the Ethiopian can never change his skin. You cannot change um, his nature. Um, and so it's kind of like uh, that, that trope um, of like cleaning, this impossible, quote unquote, this impossible task of cleaning the black body was like you know a, a humorous trope that was being used in um, this Cats and Jammer Kids episode, and actually um, used in a lot of other contemporary popular culture. Uh, and what's also um, what also must be noted about like this this specific episode, um, which you also see in an episode of because um, but. In, in RF Outcult's Buster Brown, there's a similar episode where Buster, um, like you know, proposes to a a black like a black child that he sees on the street, like you know, let's swap clothes, um, and he plays a similar trick on his mother, where where the, this um, African American boy w- walks into Buster Brown's home, and then the mother thinks that her child has been like you know again like contaminated and she tries to do the same thing like clean him up and you know there's this kind of like this because it shows the the bodies of these black children as um like naked it's fetishizing um their bodies and it's almost like you know they're they're expo- they're um kind of like the, the strips normalize like the sexual ob- objectification of, of black children. Um, and again, this was not unusual. Like there were a lot of images um, showing, you know, like the buttocks and the genitalia, um, the nudity of, of black children. So uh, it was just like participating in kind of like this um, in, in a larger uh, kind of like um, cultural act of uh, again, normalizing um, this idea of of black children as as sexual objects. Uh, what I want to note about these these kinds of strips of kind of like um you know the the swapping of the clothes and then the clean like the attempt to like like cleaning um 
like the bodies of like the black children um like it's on the one hand we can look at it like it made me wonder like oh what's what's significant is that in these strips um it seems to be suggesting that they're that black and white children do have qualities that they share with one another that they can easily be mistaken um, for one another. But it's also important to look at the strips as a kind of like a crit- criticism of the mother, um, you know, specifically because that she's so inattentive, she's unable to distinguish between her real child and, and another child. Um, but it's also this insistence, right? Like, um, that blackness kind of like erases individual features um, so that, you know, the, the reason that these, these mothers mistake um, their children uh, or, or think that these, um, these African-American children are their children is because like the kind of like the, the, their, the, their black skin is, su- is supposed to say that their features are again, in, like indistinguishable. In Carl Bunny Schultz's Foxy Grandpa and Ann Windsor McKay's Little Nemo, how and why did white children in blackface transgress sympathy for African Americans while also advancing racial difference, racialized family unity, and even the specter of becoming black, a la flip? Also, how did uh, R.F. Altcoat's uh, Poor Little Most set up an African American as a liminal character, especially in urban racial encounters, and how did readers react? Yeah, uh, yeah, thanks for that question. So, um, this, uh, so there's this episode of um, Foxy Grandpa um, by Charl, uh, Carl Bunny Schultz um, where he, he shows um, the two, so two boys like putting on blackface because um, they want to try to trick their grandfather. Like they want to, so the joke is like they they tell one another let's dress up as in in their terms like pickaninnies um and so they put they put on blackface um and then the grandfather sees them doing this trick and so he also puts on blackface and then he f- ends up giving like you know in the terms of the comic strip giving the children a fright um because he looks like again um using the term that's used in the comic strip he looks like a, a big old darky. Um, so this act of putting on blackface um, in this comic strip, uh, on the on the one hand, was uh, test uh, testified to the rise of amateur min- minstrelsy during the period. So even though professional minstrel minstrelsy around this period was on the decline, um, you know there there was this kind of like a. Uh, uh, rise of um mi- like the practice of minstrelsy the pra- practice of blackface in middle class homes as um and even in summer camps as a kind of like um you know an activity that families and and children should should participate in um and in this strip what what i find is that uh you know it's kind of like oh sorry so j- let me walk back a little bit like this this practice of um amateur minstrelsy was believed to be like unhealthy activity for um, white children, um, perhaps even more specifically white male children, um, because there was this anxiety that, you know, as um, the United States was becoming more modern and more urban, that 
uh, children, especially boys, were becoming softer. Um, and because of the influence, the growing influence of the mother in the home, you know, they were also becoming like feminized. And so there was like a lot of anxiety about this, like, you know, the, the, the loss of like boyhood vigor. And so like this practice of um, like by quote unquote, pretending to be black by donning blackface, um, that boys were able to maintain or regain their sense of vigor, their sense of play. Um, and kind of just like, uh, you know, it would keep them healthy in the face of like, you know, modernization, um, domestication and, um, urbanization. Um, in, in this specific episode of Foxy, um, grandpa. So, you know, when grandpa dresses up like is as like, you know, um, dress up in blackface and frightens the children, it, it references like the character, what's called like the black brute, um, caricature, um, showing how, like, you know, African-Americans as threatening to um, white children. Um, but what's also interesting in this strip um, that should be definitely uh, is worth noting is that the, the um, so there's this kind of like this game, right? It, it's it's, it's um, by, by the children and by their grandfather putting on blackface, they're all just playing at being black and it's like temporary. And there's this moment when um, you can clearly see that they're just wearing makeup. They, their hair is still blonde. Their skin underneath the makeup is still very white. So it's kind of like giving us reassurance that, okay, they're just playing at being black. They're just playing at being aggressive. They're just playing at being mischievous. They're not um, becoming uh, violent. You know, They're not becoming troublemakers. Um, and it actually also shows that how you know, um, towards the end of the strip, they're all dancing in blackface, kind of showing how this is like a family activity, right? Like a, an, a something to create like this bonds between the generations. Um, and this is in contrast to in Windsor McKay's L- Little Nemo. He has a character named Flip, who um, many people have argued as a, a kind of like a character who is permanently wearing blackface there's there are indications in this strip that um flip is a a white child um because there are moments when he like strips his clothes you can see his white skin right um but we never actually see his like real face because he's always wearing makeup and he is like a very aggressive character in in this strip like he's a threat to the demure um princess he's in the very beginning of the strip, a threat to um, Little Nemo. He's very vulgar. He's like, you know, he chomps on a cigar. He's like, it's kind of like, you know, again, like this boy who is no longer innocent. And so it's in a way, it's like, this like, Flip is kind of like demonstrating the danger of permanently wearing blackface where you um, kind of like forget your own, um, like your your own whiteness. So that was kind of like the the, the, uh, caution that was being offered through through the character of Flip, um, and then move, moving on to like um, to Little Nose, uh, I I have often read RF Outcult's uh, Poor Little Nose as a very ambivalent um, strip about the African American child. Uh, so there's no question that Poor Little Nose. Um, 
was based on like the Piccanini caricature. Uh, especially in the very early episodes of the strip where he like talks in like this crude like like what like you know what was assumed to be a black dialect um he was poor he was like uh a th- like he was a petty thief and of course he would he and his family would steal like chicken and watermelons so all these just like stereotypes about like surrounding um like black characters uh, or sorry um like like African Americans were kind of like uh were kind of like put into the like the characters that populated poor little Mose. Uh but what's also interesting in Poor Little Mose, so um in this series, Mose would often talk in um rhymed, metered verse. So he was a poet and he would like reference like Shakespeare, for example. So there was this measure of erudition and so so there was a sense of like you know that this boy was actually also so even though he spoke in like this like again quote like quote unquote like black dialect um he was also like you know literate and had this kind of like sophistication um that he was very aware of like you know um like shakespeare um that he even quotes shakespeare and then in later episodes so um, the early episodes of Poor Little Mose was um, set in like this fictional town in Georgia called Cottonville. Um, and then midway through the series, he uh, Mose travels to New York City um, and he lives in New York City. And then what's interesting is like this very young child uh, and his like gang of animals, um, they they start living in the city and they seem to thrive in the city. So on the one hand, um, Mose is often portrayed in this like urban um, episodes as very much an outsider in New York city, but he also seems to be like, you know, he's very independent. He also serves as like, kind of like a critic of um, modern urban life that like, he would just like observe and see how, you know, all these like contradictions and all these like excesses that um, like, er, like folks li- living in the city had. Um, and that, you know, so he was uh, like in a way kind of like this figure of the wise, um, the wise greenhorn. Um, he was also kind of like, you know, like when he was in the city, uh, some like he seemed to kind of like uh, sometimes like some of the, ca- some of the characters he would encounter would um, look at him as kind of like an alien, like uh, uh, somebody who did not belong in the city. But for the most part, he, there was a sense that, you know, the other characters like welcomed his presence. Like they didn't seem to look as if um, he was this very, very foreign um, being in, in an urban setting. Um, and what's also interesting is that um, throughout the series, especially because he was like surrounded by, by animals. Um, it seems to suggest and um, even romanticize how the child and even like um, how like, you know, African-Americans were in touch with, with nature, right. That there was this kind of like layer of um, layer of like, um, and, sorry, this, this other layer that's added to Mo's. Uh, so on the one hand, right. Like it, it does suggest like, he is primitive because he is in touch with, with like he talk, he can talk to animals and he's surrounded by animals. 
But on the other hand, it's also this kind of like, again, this romantic idea of the child or and the African-American is kind of like more in touch with nature, more, um, more spontaneous, um, having more like simple, like simpler needs. Um, and I think many, um, even though uh, Mose, poor little Mose was relatively short lived, it, it lasted about a year and a half. Um, it seemed like f- there's evidence to, to suggest that uh, young readers like of um, the, the comic supplement of the New York Herald enjoyed reading Mose. Um, there was like at least like one reader who like sent a poem based on like, you know, that featured a poem about Mose um, to, um, to the New York Herald and it was published in the New York Herald. Um, and uh, she was saying that, you know, I love Mose very much. Um, and, and so this, her poem was published um, in, in the Herald, but in, in her poem, she suggests that, you know, she kind of like recreates like racial typographies because the title of her poem is like greedy little Mose and, Kind of, she she kind of pictures him as again like greedy and like clumsy. Um, so in a way, uh, the the child readers who were um, consuming the strip week after week were kind of like uh, reproducing um, contemporary uh, racial typographies of African Americans. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. So the next couple of questions have to do with RF Altcoat's uh, Buster Brown and Windsor McKay's Little Nemo, both pretty popular strips. What are examples uh, from Buster Brown, which apparently derived from genre painting, that promoted the individual naughty boy within the companionate family, a family reconciled by humorous exclusion of middle class peoples? In addition, how did serialization reveal Brown family endurance and challenge Percival Chubbs's arguments that the naughty boy was the quote product? In unquote, product and source of the moral bankruptcy of the family. Yes. So, um, as as you said, right, uh, Buster Brown can be traceable to the naughty boy um, trope that was, um, you know, very very popular in like, the nineteenth century, as expressed in like genre paintings, um, lithographs, uh, and children's books. Um, so, like Tom, uh, Adventures of Tom Sawyer, and Story of a Bad Boy. Um, and, you know, in, in these materials that there was this kind of suggestion that, you know, oh, boys, boys will be boys. And they were really like these celebrations of um, like pluck and autonomy and self-reliance and ingenuity. What's interesting about Buster Brown is that um, he these images of these 19th century images of naughty boys were often like, um, you know, like barefoot boys in the countryside. Like he takes them and kind of like imagines like what what would the naughty boy be like if he was in like a well he was well healed and he was like um a city boy and so we have Buster Brown and it, it almost seems like we can read Buster Brown as kind of like this assurance that boys can still thrive boys can still be boys even in like mo- these like modern and urban settings um 
And what's, I think, part of the point of Buster Brown, so, you know, we can think about Buster Brown as a very, like, he's, like, extremely mischievous. He's always making trouble, always upsetting his mother. Um, but it's, I, I, I think if you're reading the, the, like, you know, kind of like the strip more globally, um, the strip is actually suggesting that the naughty boy at the end is not disruptive um, to family life. So as you, as you mentioned, um, uh, there, there was this um, cultural critic named Percival Chubb, uh, like he was a, a reformer who was warning about all these like images of naughty boys and naughty girls that were appearing in um, the comic strip supplement. And he was saying that these strips were encouraging um, bad behavior in our children. We should get rid of them. Then the, the, the very existence of these images actually testifies to how cor- um, the family is the you know the the family is being corrupted. Um, but in my reading of Buster Brown, like I, I I'm suggesting that the strips actually were encouraging. Um, like humor, how humor could be used as a tool to bring the family together. So like this, the strip was meant to be like a family strip um, that, you know, like that adults and their children, could, the parents and their children could read together and laugh over together. And also in a way, you know, for, for example, parents to read so that they could like laugh at themselves um, and, to kind of just like laugh at their, say like their own failures at, at child rearing. Um, and so in a way, like, because uh, typically the, you know, we often understand like humor or laughter um, to be like aggressive in nature. Like we're always laughing at somebody else um, to kind of like establish a boundary between us versus them. So, you know, we, we, um, it's like the, this kind of like laughter of derision, but in Buster Brown, um, the the laughter was often about like a laughter of sympathy, so laughing together instead of like at one another, um, but also like the laughter of relief, where again like all these like tensions in the family home. So in a way, there were like these ideal like ideals of what a family should be like. And then, of course, there's the realities of what family life actually is, that it's not perfect, that there are these like tensions between, um, you know, husband and wife, parents and children, um, the private home versus like, you know, the, the world outside the home. And Buster Brown was kind of like encouraging its readers to kind of like laugh away, um, like recognize these recognize the tension between the ideal and the real and, and laugh to kind of like relieve um, this, this tension. Um, but that's not to say that, uh, I mean, I'm not suggesting here that uh, Buster Brown did not um, use aggressive or derisive um, humor. It definitely did. Uh, it often would um, target, you know, so-called outsiders, uh, as they can you know, turn it into the butt of jokes. So typically, for example, like immigrant the immigrant vendors or like the um, some of the maids, uh, the servants of the um, the Buster household were often kind of like the butt of the jokes because uh, they were the ones who kind of like did not belong to like this white middle class um, family home. Um, 
you 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 mentioned earlier like you know how that like asking this question about like um how the serial nature of um of of the comic strip kind of proved this uh like the strength of the family because it's like you know so week after week um buster so it seems right like if you if you look at the strip like week after week there's this young boys always like creating trouble in the home so we, we imagine like this this house must be like a very very like tense like home because there's um there's this troublemaking boy who's just like incorrigible like there's just no way of um kind of like correcting him but um what's interesting is that you know so week after week there are mischiefs and disruptions and chaos but week after week the Buster Brown family is still together so there's kind of like it's the the, the strip is actually showing how um the white middle class family at least right is is pictured as this very strong unit that can actually withstand like, you know, um, the pranks and the, um, the, the troublesome nature of the, the, um, the naughty boy. What is the significance of Buster Brown's relationship with Mary Jane and his compassion for the downtrodden animals? Likewise, how did his pranks revitalize affection from his uh, Gibson girl-like mother while his parents' affection prompted his own good behavior. Also, I guess in the final analysis, why did ad- editors advertise for and families such as the uh, Roosevelt's welcome an effeminately or purportedly effeminately clad Buster Brown into their homes? Oh, yeah. So um, so Mary Jane is an interesting character. Um, so I, I neglected to mention earlier that um, Out, Out called, uh would claim that his... Um, the inspiration behind Buster Brown was his own son. And then he later also said that the inspiration um, behind Mary Jane was his daughter. Um, and in a way, we, we could look at Mary Jane as kind of like um, a picture of how girls can't be um, as naughty as boys. Like, because Mary Jane is, um, you know, she's not as a, a prankster, like a, a, a perpetrator of pranks the same way as, as Buster is. Um, but sometimes she did participate um, in the pranks. And I think most notably, like, you know, she would witness um, Buster's pranks or sometimes even be kind of like his muse. So it was suggesting that that was a function of girls for for boys like Buster, that they would be kind of like the audience um, for this naughty behavior or even the inspiration behind this naughty behavior. Um as to the other part of your question, um, it, uh, it's I I I like to um, emphasize that uh, Buster Brown was of course referencing um, Cedric, um, the main character of uh, Little Lord Fauntleroy, um, and so on the one hand, like we could look at Buster Brown, who like you know with his kind of like his haircut, his um, his pink outfit. Uh, that he's kind of like mocking Cedric um, for being like this overly effeminate boy um, and showing how, you know, how even if it's a, a boy is like dressed up in this way, he can still resist feminizing influences that even though Buster may look feminine, um, he can still act very, very masculine through his pranks. Um, but I, I also want to, I also like to read um, Buster not as kind of like a rejection of Little Lord Fauntleroy. He's more of an, an interpretation of, of Cedric because um, 
in in the strips uh there are many many episodes where buster is not like how do i put this like even though he's still prankish and and naughty uh there's this insistence that he's not naughty but nice um and it often manifests itself in episodes where it shows him caring for the poor uh like there's this episode where he picks up the wallet of some corrupt landlord and then he gives away the money to the, this landlord's um, poor um, tenants. And then he, uh, in another episode or in multiple episodes, he's, uh, Buster is often commenting on other characters like um, cruelty to animals. Um, sometimes he even like rescues uh, animals. Like see, he rescues like dogs from a dog catcher. Uh, so and there's so it's, there's often this sense where um, the the strip was insisting that that Buster, even though he was very very naughty, that he had like this sense of justice, um, that he wasn't just like you know this he was not a malicious boy. Um, and as to the question about like the affection between the parent and the child, um, so it's very obvious, right? Like Buster would sometimes mock. Um, and frustrate his parents, but there were so many scenes, um, you know, in in these episodes of affection between Buster and his father, and um, uh, very very much of Buster and his his um, mother, um, and sometimes some of these um, some of these uh, embraces and kisses that were exchanged between parents and child were even facilitated by by Buster's tricks. Um, so you know, like there's this one episode where he uh, Buster kind of like um, tricks one of the maids um, into take sitting down for a portrait, and then when he takes the photograph, there's actually a firecracker that explodes in Delia's face. That and um, and and you know, obviously the joke there is like, uh, how dare this you know, the servant think that she's wor- worthy of sitting down for a portrait. Um, but what's interesting, instead of the of um, Mrs. Brown, like the mother, punishing Buster and scolding him for his bad behavior, they end up kind of like, you know, in this very, um, like this embrace at the end of the scene, at the end of the episode, where um, Buster is looking up at his mother and she's, he's saying, oh, you should have seen her face. It was so funny. And then, his mother is looking at him and there's just, just like this smile on her face. So it's even like um, some of the jokes, usually at another person's expense, helps facilitate like this kind of like um, affection between the parent and, and the child. And, and I think more largely, it kind of like, um, like th- this idea of um, Buster Brown kind of like including scenes of affection um, in the family was uh, kind of like a celebration of this ideal of, again, what, what we mentioned earlier, the companionate family. So, you know, the kind of like um, a, a different ideal from the hierarchical, patriarchal family where um, in the companionate family, there was an emphasis on romance um, between husband and wife and friendship between parent and child, um, affection and shared humor between the members of the family. And I think that's why, like, uh, many readers embrace the strip Buster Brown. Um, and it became, like, Buster Brown became such a phenomenon 
And of course, Outcult was such a master of um, marketing that he very much participated in encouraging this this kind of like um, phenomenon by sometimes like encouraging, um, you know, like like having like these kinds of like uh, like gimmicks where he would uh, he would help instruct their the parents how to dress their children like Buster Brown, um, and. And again, as you mentioned earlier, uh, there were there was like a series of like oh there there was like this feature where um, some readers had sent sent in pictures of their children dressed up as Buster and uh, Outcult and um, the New York Herald published these photographs to kind of show like look look at you know all these like American children or well you know what I mean here is like these white American children dressing up like Buster Brown and among these photographs was um, the Archie Roosevelt, like one of the sons of um, Theodore Roosevelt. Um, so it, it kind of testified to this, you know, this growing embrace among white middle-class Americans of this idea of the companionate um, family and the role of the naughty boy um, in, in that companionate family. Please briefly compare and contrast Windsor McKay's uh, Little Nemo in the New York Herald with his adult comic, more adult comic strip, Rarebit Friend, addressing powerless protagonists and, for Nebo, how Slumberland functioned as both an ancient realm and a utopic space for the future ingenuity of adulthood. Okay, yes. So, um, uh, so uh, Windsor McKay's um, Rarebit Rare Bit Fiend started, uh, I think, in so it was published starting in 1904, and then a year later, in 1905, um, he started um, McKay started publishing um, Little Nemo, and you know both of them were very very innovative. Both strips um, were kind of like showed or expressed contemporary fascination with the nature of of dreams. But what's interesting when you put together or put side by side these two um, series, uh, it kind of like suggested that the nature of adults' dreams and children's dreams are very, very different. So for one, right, so in, in Rarebit Fiend, um, it seemed like adults never had like, you know, dreams. They had nightmares. Um, and they were always having these like anxieties about um, their mortality about marriage, about money, about their career, about um, raising children, about sexual intimacy. So it was kind of just like um, they would go to sleep, right? That they would have these very, very like anxious dreams. And then so when the dreamer wakes up at the end of the dream, he or she would often swear off dreaming. (laughs) They would actually say like, I I just had a terrible dream and um, I'm not... I'm not going, and, and often they would they would blame um, some rich meal that they had. So often, like you know, the the rare bit, which is like this very rich cheesy dish, they would say like, "I will never have rare bit again before I go to sleep, so that I will never have a nightmare again." And um, so there's this kind of like what suggestion where the adult is not comfortable having dreams, or that the content of his mind. Um, or her mind is often about these, like, you know, uh, like frustrations and, and worries. Um, and in Rare Between, the episodes are also one-off. Like, they were always self-contained. Um, 
And so each episode would feature like a different anonymous um, protagonist. And often the strips were like, even though some of them were, were eventually printed in black and white, they were um, many, many episodes first appeared, I'm sorry, uh, later published in color. They often also appeared um, first in black and white. Uh, and in many of these episodes of the rare bit fiend, um, the, um, the strips are also had like rather empty uh, backgrounds. So it was almost suggesting how, you know, um, these kind of the, the dreams of adults are kind of like like episodic, uh, very um, very rare, and they they ne- they did not have recurring dreams, um, and that they were not very like you know did not have much dimension because they were kind of like uh, occurring in this rather like empty like empty worlds or empty scenes versus um, little compare that to Little Nemo. Uh, which does show like the dream world is very intricate, very complex, and largely very pleasant. That you know what's called like so. It's the full title of the strip is Little Nemo in Slumberland, and Slumberland is like you know this place of play and adventure. Um, and the strip also suggests that dreaming and perhaps more broadly imagination is very much part of childhood. Uh, Little Nemo is like this recurring, um, it's a recurring dream, or I guess more um, more specifically, it's like this progressive narrative. So even though at the end of every episode, Nemo will wake up, um, he would, when he would go back to sleep, you know, the next episode would kind of just like continue where he, he left off. Um, so again, there's a su- suggestion that um, it's kind of like a continuous um uh, like the dreams of children are very, very continuous and in a way like very much part of, of the nature of childhood. Uh, and Slumberland is, this, you know, it's this world where it's made up of different kingdoms. So there's a suggestion too that this, there's this world, right? That, that, the, that the dream world is like this ancient realm, this once upon a time where it could be this place that uh, has existed before Nemo um, and will, will probably continue to exist after him. And it kind of like uh, this attachment um, that the child, so this child's entry into this kind of like this ancient world seems to suggest where like, you know, the child's uh, primal roots that he has like this connection to, you know, the most primal part of, of ourselves. But another way of reading it, um, so that, you know, the, um, so one way of reading the strip was like thinking about it as like these connections to the past, the child's connections to the past. Uh, one way is look at looking at the strip is also how the dream world was actually a way for the child to kind of like rehearse um, his role in, in the future. So uh, one way of interpreting uh, Slumberland um is that it's a place that Nemo was able to construct himself um, out of like, you know, the things that he witnesses and hears in his waking life. So maybe like, you know, maybe a circus he attended, an amusement park that he visited, um, a story, a fairy tale that he heard. Um, so it's kind of suggesting how the child is very much, you know, um, ingenious. Um, and again, it goes back to this theme of like, you know, the, the, this particular kind of like dream, uh, child who's very, very imaginative. Um, 
is capable of inheriting uh, this uh, a nation that was modernizing and expanding. How did the Nemo Parade episode and characters such as Imp and Flip as well as the princess, um, how did these characters uh, celebrate uh, U.S. imperialism? And how did the Shantytown episode allude to progressive uplift reform? And did McKay's son win a medal for service in the 100 Days Offensive? Yes. Um, so l- let's start with that. So, uh, so Robert Windsor McKay uh, was said to be the model um, for Little Nemo. Um, so that he, so again, he was like the inspiration um, uh, for the character. Um, and in 1919, he was awarded the British um, Military Medal for service in, for his role in the 100 uh, Days Offensive. And I think... Um, and it was interesting because, like you know, there were a number of newspapers that kind of like celebrate, like documented this event. And they, there was this photograph of Robert Windsor with his father, um, you know, kind of just like celebrating his uh, this, this his uh, receiving of, of the medal. And if in in the photograph, the photograph was often captioned with like you know. Little Nemo has now grown up, right? And here he is receiving this um this milit- this medal for his service in in the Hundred Days Offensive. So in a way, it's like it's suggesting was uh that you know that Robert Windsor was like this real um life proof of how the young, imaginative, dreaming child could grow up to be a soldier, a leader. Um, and so it was suggesting that, you know, that the dream world or a world like Slumberland was a place for uh, young children, more specifically young middle, white middle class boys um, to rehearse their, their future role um, as, you know, as uh, um, soldiers or as leaders of like this, this growing empire that was the United States. Um, and what's interesting, there is this episode uh, of, Little Nemo in Slumberland, where he's sitting on like a, a either like a balcony or a grandstand with with the king and the princess of Slumberland, um, and right in front of them there are the children children from around the world um, presenting themselves for review, like you know mar- marching in front of the king, the princess, and Nemo. Um, you know, and, and they're all wearing like their traditional costumes to kind of suggest that you know they're quaint, right, or they're even primitive, and that they're not modern like Little Nemo. Um, so there's a sense of kind of like where Nemo, because he's sitting in the grandstand, he's not participating in the parade. He's uh, reviewing these other children. Um, kind of like separates him from these other children and also establishes his superiority, uh, his privilege to, to look at them um, kind of like def- it defines him against these uh, children from other nations. And throughout the strip is also often repeated where Nemo um, is often defined against uh, three different kinds of children, the supporting characters of, of the strip. So one, there's Imp. Um, and Imp is interesting because, again, his age seems indeterminate. Uh, but he's a, kind of like suggesting how 
the so-called um, primitive, like the island primitive, is childlike, you know, again, like perpetually immature. Um, it's like, and, you know, he's like the savage, nonsensical, animalistic character that's, ve- that's the opposite of like the more rational and more civilized child that is Nemo. Um, there's also this uh, opposition between Nemo versus like the princess. The princess is, you know, kind of like helpless and passive. She's also very chaste, right? And her role primarily is to, like the, the beginning of the, the series especially is like um, she just pines for Nemo and waits for him to come to her, to, to the castle. So it's not her um, task to take action. Like it's his job to like make his way towards her. And then finally, um, I, we, we've talked a little bit about Flip earlier, but um, uh, Nemo is also often uh, very much um, like uh, kind of like contrasted against Flip where Flip is this very uh, vulgar boy and he seems too crass to be um, redeemable for his like Nemo who seems to be like this more like innocent child. But what's interesting about Flip um, is that, you know, he's initially this very, very threatening and vulgar character. But as the strip develops, he becomes like a, almost like a, a friend like he's, uh, to, to Nemo. So there's almost like this, um, even though Nemo, is able to constantly prove that he will never be as vulgar as Flip. Um, there's this way where he can actually exercise his own like masculinity, his own energy, his own vigor um, by associating himself uh, with Flip. Please briefly explain how Lionel Feniger's uh, We Willie Winky's World emphasized environmental perspectives of the wide-awake imaginative and usually autonomous child and also explored the resurrection of the child within himself. How did such artistic interventions, particularly in the self-referential episode of Little Nemo, reveal that adults largely constructed child psychology? Yes, so um, uh, Wee Willie Winkie's world, uh, just like uh, Little Nemo in Slumberland, was again a celebration of boyhood um, imagination but as you mentioned, um, in Wee Willie Winkie's world, uh, our eponymous um, protagonist is not asleep. Like he, he, his adventure takes place, um, you know, in his waking life, um, and it. So the emphasis there is how the imagination of of the boy, um, through his imagination, he's able to transform the world, or maybe more specifically, is he is able to. Uh, change his perception of of the world so he could look at rocks um but at the seaside like um and see them as marine animals uh he could look at a house and see that it has a human face uh he could look at you know um, a bridge and imagine it to be like a caterpillar and clouds and trees as like creatures and there's the emphasis in we uh we willy winky's world is how the you know this is a celebration not just of childhood imagination but also childhood independence because we often see uh, uh, Willie like walking around the countryside by himself Um, and it's almost suggesting that the child has to be left alone um, allowed to do what he uh, like be given this freedom in order for him 
to exercise his imagination. Uh, again, it's also significant that the child is placed in the countryside. Again, kind of like making this connection between um, children and nature, uh, that, that this idea that the child belongs in nature. Uh, and what's also interesting is that, you know, often like we Willy Winky is very like drawn as a very, very small character in this strip. Uh, it's often like the environment seems to kind of like swallow him up, you know, like you pay, you're paying more attention to the environment than to this little character. But sometimes I read this as um, kind of like showing how this little character, like Willie is like the child king and he's like the monarch surveying his, his kingdom that he's free to roam um, in. Um, what, what's interesting is that uh, there's this episode of um, Wee Willie Winky where Feininger uh, draws himself into one of the scenes. And so it's showing where he's standing on a rock with Willie and Willie is pointing to the clouds and um, the cliffside and he's saying, oh, look look at the dragon. Look, look there, there's a dragon and look there, there's a pretty lady. And then we can see the figure of Feininger like drawing on a sketch pad. Uh, so it's it's suggesting here that the adult artist that is finding finding her is taking instruction um from the child to, uh, on how to draw and what to draw and this speaks to how like you know our, around that time in among european artists there was this kind of like um celebration of like uh i guess what could, what could be called like infantilist um strategies um of art uh where there was this kind of like view of that children's um, children were natural artists, uh, and that they were spontaneous. Like um, their art was more spontaneous, more honest, more free than adult art that's become so regimented. And um, Feininger himself uh, was was one of the artists who uh, would would actually collect children's drawings uh, um, as inspiration for his own work. And in a way that this this episode of Wee Willy Winky. Wee Willie Winky's world was kind of like showing um, Feininger's belief that children were uh, natural artists and that the adult artist could take his cue from, from the child. And Feininger and um, McKay uh, often like use these kind of like meta, what I call like meta comic elements, um, you know, these where there's like, they're very, very self self-referential. They often broke the fourth wall. They, they would draw themselves into the strips or reference the role of the artist in, in creating the comics that we are actually reading. Um, and there's this one episode of Little Nemo when um, uh, Nemo would say, like actually said says something, like as the, the frame is like collapsing on him and he says like, oh, look at what the artist is doing to me. And I think what's, what's interesting about that strip it, because it reminds us of the role of um, the artist in creating Nemo is that we're actually encouraged to look at Nemo as a fiction. Um, and so uh, the, the tension here is that on the one hand, uh, readers were often looking at the children, especially children like little Nemo, as very real children. 
especially the fact, for example, as I mentioned earlier, that Nemo was based on a real child. So we're encouraged to see him um, as a very real child. But on the other hand, the comics are also constantly reminding us that um, these children are also fictions. They're also imagined. Um, and this kind of ties up with, uh, like, you know, existing theories at the time where, um, so, you know, child psychology, um, children's books, like children's fantasy books more specifically, and these comic strips, they were all participating in um, naturalizing the image of the dreamful and imaginative and even enigmatic child. Um, but through these meta-fictive elements that would remind us how adults are actually creating the image of the imaginative child. Uh, it was suggesting, again, that these children, that um, child psychology and children's books and comic strips were, were saying were natural and very real, was also a figment of the adult imagination. In the context of books such as Anne of Green Gables, can you provide examples of how Windsor McKay's The Story of Hungry uh, Henrietta and uh, Grace Wiedersheim's Dolly Dimple attempted to address female overconsumption and coquettish titillation? Yes. So um, uh, around the time that, you know, these strips were um, uh, coming out, so Hungry Henrietta by Windsor McKay and Dolly Dimple by um, Grace uh, Wiedersheim, among the most pop, like very popular books among children, uh, were Anne of Green Gables um, and uh, Rebecca of of Sunnybrook Farm. And here we have like you know these uh, troublemaking girls who would upend the lives of adults because they were like high spirited, they were talkative. Um, what was interesting about these uh, these books was there was this emphasis of how the power of girls, right? Um, to transform their communities. So they would um, kind of like have this very transformative and positive impact on these like fossilized adults or these kind of like very unhappy adults that they would bring joy and, and life back into the lives of, of adults. Uh, and what's also important in um, to note about these books is that the conclusion, they conclude with, the transformation of the girls themselves where, you know, the, in the end, there's this emphasis where, that shows that um, they are eventually, like, you know, domesticated and become ready for their roles as wives um, or even as mothers, right? Like, uh, because they, they choose domestic duties over their career. So in the end, there's nothing really um, threatening about them because they, they don't uh, upend like the, like the social order um, because they end up performing norm- normative gender roles. Uh, and so in this context, uh, we see uh, McKay's uh, The Story of Hungry Henrietta, where you know we could read it as this very unbecoming picture of a girl because she's always eating. So she's greedy, she's selfish, she um, lacks discipline because she's like consuming rather than making. Um, and so it's almost like, you know, this picture of like, she's unfeminine because she eats too much. Uh, but I, it's also very important to note that how this strip could be 
read as a criticism of um, contemporary uh, child rearing advice. Like uh, there were a number of like parenting manuals that emphasized restraint and regimentation. Um, and there's actually this character in Hungry Henrietta who keeps saying, oh, the girl just needs to eat. Like if you let her eat, then she will be fine, right? She's a growing child. So there's a sense of, um, you know, where, where Hungry Henrietta on the one hand is a picture of this kind of like uh, unfeminine girl because she's always um, eating. But there's also this kind of um, so, uh, question, like what what will happen to the girl if we just give her what, what she wants or what she needs, right? Like uh, she needs to eat. So maybe we should just let her eat. Uh, and then in uh, Grace Weeder Science um, strip, uh, Dottie Dimple, uh, D- Dottie is this like picture of like, you know, the, the kind of like this oxymoron, the innocent coquette, right? Where it's like um, she, she becomes like this bad girl because uh, she expresses or embodies um, desire. And yet at the same time, she's still like cute. And I guess like a good way of understanding Dottie is uh, looking at her as a, a precursor of Shirley Temple. You know, she's like chubby cheeks. She has like these ringlets. She has like plump arms and, and legs. Um, and in many, many episodes of, of Dottie Dimple, there's always like, a, you know, she's always tripping or being spanked. And in these scenes, like her underwear, like her underpants um, are revealed, right? So there's this sense of kind of like, there's something titillating about like the half naked, um, like white female child uh and there's there's this one episode where she's at the park um she sees this uh this poor um girl who's kind of like wearing like tattered clothes and out of like you know this um dotty decides to perform this kind act of giving her clothes to this poor child so she um she takes off her clothes and and gives it to this other girl and then she, when she um, walks up to her cousin, who uh, at that moment is sitting on a bench with her suitor, uh, there's this like you know the the this the reaction on these two characters that they're like both um, like in shock. But what's interesting is that the the female cousin seems to be more, um, or what I'm reading as a cousin, she could be like you know the the sister of of um, Dottie here. She looks at Dottie and she's um, kind of just like embarrassed by the, this by female nudity, while while the um, the the suitor seems to be a little bit more uh, amused. But what's what's interesting is that you know here, Dottie seems to interrupt the scene of like a chaste courtship, and her nearly um, naked body seems to remind adults that implicit in this courtship you know are, are is the idea of like you know the possibility of marriage and the possibility of sexual relations and the possibility of a child like uh um coming out of that marriage right so this um so and it also seems to also prove that you know even though there's this funny scene of a child stripping down to her underclothes it also reinforce shows how um the female cousin has the quote unquote the proper response to her that she's embarrassed that she's shocked by this this nudity um, and so again what's what's interesting is that 
in in Dolly Dimple, there's there's a suggestion of um, the, how the naked girl is at once innocent of sex. You know, she's she doesn't know what she's doing. That's why she's like stripping down to her underwear, and she doesn't think she's it's it's uh, a tr- uh, bothersome. Um, but at the same time, her body is reminding readers of um, you know this the sexuality of of young girls. Similarly, how did female protagonists in W.O. Wilson's Madge, the Magician's Daughter, and Tom Tucker's Betsy Bouncer explore transgressions of what you alluded to as the enigmatic female within patriarchal bounds, as well as this uh, sentient doll as a vehicle for deviance with impunity and subordination of the other? And what about the idea of disinterestedness in reproduction and race suicide? Yes, so... um... In both strips, in Madge the Magician's Daughter and Betsy Bouncer and her doll, uh, the the strips suggest that you know fantasy or um, fantasy play was a way for girls to transgress and to challenge um, normative gender roles, but within specific, like you know, like within certain limitations. So, for example, in Madge the Magician's Daughter, um, Madge is often like trying to perform um, magic that she's trying to summon like dragons, but then she will come up with like a crocodile or something, or she would try to like, um, you know, magic uh, butterflies out of thin air. And yet what, what comes up instead are like uh, antelope or whatever. Right. So, uh, so, and, and what's interesting is that um, she is the daughter of, a magician so magic is her father's um, expertise and she always seems to like you know get it wrong like she's a little inept um she's incapable of kind of like uh like properly mimicking her her father uh but the strip what, what's interesting about it is that you know instead of being punished by her father um he corrects her and seems to encourage her, like he never kind of like you know he never takes away his her wand. Um, he just like fixes like whatever mistake that she she made, makes the the like you know the animals d- disappear. Um, but he seems to encourage her to keep practicing. So in a way, he's he's willing to kind of like share his expertise with his female child, um, and. How I read Madge, um, Madge a Magician's Daughter, is that she uh, Madge is often trying to perform her tricks in front of her friends, and there's this kind of like this implication where her father, as a magician, is performing you know these tricks in front of a larger audience. And so I read the strip uh, at, like Ma- Madge's um, attempts or kind of like um, attempts at magic was a way for her, like expressive of her desire to, for a public performance, for a, a place in the public sphere to be seen, um, you know, by a larger audience. And, and, and you know, in, implicitly, it's like this desire to go beyond um, domestic duties, to go beyond like the walls of the private home and have a more um, active role in like, you know, in, in civic spheres. Uh, Betsy Bouncer and, and her doll uh, is a very interesting strip because it is a uh, 
you know, on the one hand, we can we can make these connections between Betsy Bouncer and a more, um, you know, a, 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 a like Calvin and Hobbes, you know, where um, the protagonist um, has a sentient toy. Um, but the doll in, um, in Betsy Bouncer is a violent and very malicious doll. Um, and, you know, she's, it's not just like this kind of like crankish doll, but it's almost like it's a doll who dreams up like destruction. And one way we can read the strip is that um, the doll becomes like, you know, a way for Betsy to explore unacceptable behavior uh where so in other words like whatever um whatever aggressions betsy herself might be feeling is kind of like displaced onto the doll so betsy herself remains like this like very pure and innocent girl because it's not her but her doll who is performing or dreaming up these like um these bad quote-unquote bad things but the doll is also also functions kind of like you know as Betsy's opposite. Like in a way, we get to see how Betsy is a proper girl because um, she is not her doll. Her doll is like this, you know, very um, like like quote unquote this very ugly toy. Like she is um, kind of like just made up of rags, and she has like a tuft of um, a tuft of hair. Uh, and it's also interesting to look at her that it, I mean she's a doll she is so she is a possession she's an own thing um and so it's an opportunity for Betsy to also practice being a possess a possessor um and it's the doll like you know the doll is the one who is uh who performs all these like violent acts or dreams of these violent acts and it's also the doll who is punished and mutilated and maimed and then so betsy can then practice um mothering this doll or nurturing this doll back to like health right uh and uh there have been scholars have talked about like you know the connection between dolls and enslavement so in a way there's something um there's this white white supremacist um ideas that are coded into betsy bouncer and her doll because um her doll as his own thing, right, becomes like, um, in a way, like this enslaved um, possession or enslaved property that uh, Betsy is allowed to practice her um, kind of like her superior role as a white, a white middle class girl. Um, and in both, uh, I, in both strips, uh, in Magic Magician's Daughter and Betsy Bouncer and her doll, uh, there's this kind of like a consistent imagery um of like like the young girl practicing motherhood so as i mentioned earlier betsy often practices um healing um and disciplining her her doll it's a kind of like rehearsal for motherhood and in in Madge a magician's daughter there's this consistent imagery of you know uh the maternal and the fertile there's like some often like some of the animals that she would conjure are mother and child. Uh, you know, there's this one, one strip where she, she um, accidentally uh, summons like storks with carrying babies in their mouth. So there's a sense of like, kind of like, um, like again, this imagery of, of mother, like 
animal mothers um, or a- animals that are associated with uh, with fertility, like like the stork. And so it it goes. Um, it's a way for me to answer that the question about like um like contemporary contemporary anxieties about race suicide in the face of um like growing like European immigration. So in many of the in many strips uh published during the time um white euro-american women were often denigrated um for their desire for civic and economic participation um and also blamed for again what was called uh race suicide it was like you know kind of like um charging them for like the impending death of uh like the the Anglo-Saxon race because they were prioritizing their career, um, prioritizing shopping, <laughs> prioritizing um, their their right to vote, right uh, over um, becoming like wives and mothers. Um, and I think in this context, uh, Madge and the Madge and Betsy strips seem to offer assurance that. Um, Girls who fantasized about misbehavior, who would, uh, you know, fantasize about transgressing um, normative gender roles, still were kind of like um, had the potential to grow up to be wives and mothers because they were kind of like still rehearsing the role of, um, you know, pra- practicing how to be a mother through their dolls or through through their magic. So yes. I just wanted to mention you also have a very compelling conclusion, which uh, connects your work to uh, the strips um, Calvin and Hobbes and the Boondocks, which we don't have time for, but uh, uh, listeners should check out the book. Um, I also wanted to apologize. I misspoke. The McKay's strip is a rare bit uh, fiend, not friend. I, uh, <laughs> the perils of, 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 of typos in my notes. I'm very familiar with the strip. Um, I do have one final question. What's uh, what's going on with you uh, next? Do you have any future projects or anything? Oh, yeah. Um, so I'm currently working on a project, and this is all, you know, still um, very, very much in development. But um, I, my 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 current work, uh, I'm trying to investigate the childhood in the context of. Um, petroculture or um oil like you know our current oil society um so i want to think about how uh by looking primarily at children's um culture cultural forms uh so like children's books comics um hopefully interviews with real children um legal definitions of children um looking at these like various forms that have to do with childhood and try to see how um, children are taught about, um, or I guess like, let me, let me put it this way, how we construct or define childhood um, and how, and how that these constructions and definitions are tied to, the way that we value um, oil um, in our culture, so it's almost like this push for like um, modernity and economic expansion. How how that affects the ways that we understand um, childhood, 
and how cultural forms that are produced for children tend to teach um, the normalization of like dependency on on oil. So I'm building off on like um, some. I think uh, I think the um, critic's name is M- Michael Malouf, where he talks about how like the Pixar films, for example, like um, are petroliterate because they they teach children how like um, the use of of oil energy is normal, right? That we should not question it. So I'm trying to build off on his his ideas and just also trying to think about like the connections about like how the way we value oil um, has shaped the ways that we think about childhood. So yeah, <laughs> sounds like a pretty interesting project. Yeah. Um, so uh, the book. Uh, thank you for being on the show today, Professor. Oh, you're uh, welcome. Agisak. So the book is uh, Incorrigibles and Innocence, Constructing Childhood and Citizenship in Progressive Era Comics, uh, published last year by uh, Rutgers University Press. On behalf of Professor Sagisag, this is uh, New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New New Books Network. And of course, this has been your host, Ryan Tripp. Uh, Please tune in next time.